Well, thanks very much, Andrew, for that uh, generous introduction. Can I acknowledge we're meeting on the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal people? Dara Nuna, Dara Ngunnawal, Yungu, Nalamanyan, Dunimanyan, Ngunnawalwari, Daurawari, Dindi, Wangaralinjinyan. I acknowledge all Indigenous people present and commit myself as a member of the government uh, to the implementation in full of the Uluru Statement for the Heart, including a constitutionally enshrined voice to Parliament. It's a real pleasure to have people in the room from my current and former professions. Uh, I want to particularly uh, acknowledge uh, former New South Wales Premier and New South Wales Senator Christina Keneally, uh, my ACT colleagues Alicia Payne and Dave Smith, uh, ABS Head David Gruen, Treasury Head Stephen Kennedy uh, and ANU Vice-Chancellor Brian Schmidt. Thank you too to the club's sponsors uh, for doing me the honour of inviting me to speak to you today. Social workers in schools always boost student outcomes. Drug offenders shouldn't be treated differently. Malaria bed nets are more likely to be used if people pay for them. Seeing inside a jail will deter juvenile delinquents from becoming criminals. All four statements sound perfectly sensible, don't they? Unfortunately, randomised trials suggest that all four are perfectly wrong. Let me explain. In Britain, pilots of social workers in schools showed that everyone liked the idea. Teachers, social workers and students all liked it. Then researchers at Cardiff and Oxford universities ran a two-year randomised trial across 300 schools to test the impact. The results reported this year showed no significant positive impact. As a result, the planned UK national rollout of social workers in schools has been scrapped. In New South Wales, a randomised trial of the drug court showed that a tailored approach to drug offenders reduced recidivism. By treating their addiction, they became much less likely to re-offend than if they'd been sentenced through the traditional criminal justice processes. Drug courts don't just help addicts. They also make the streets safer. In Africa, some economists argued that free anti-malarial bed nets wouldn't be valued by villagers, saying that they might instead be used as makeshift fishing nets. So, a randomised trial tested the take-up and use of free versus cheap bed nets. Turned out that free bed nets were far more popular and equally likely to be used. As the results of the randomised trials became clear, the World Health Organisation switched its policy to favour free distribution of bed nets. The results of those experiments save thousands of lives every year. In the United States, a policy known as Scared Straight grew out of an Academy Award-winning documentary. Juvenile offenders were brought into jails for a day where they met hardened adult criminals. Low-quality evaluations, comparing those who took up the program with those who didn't, suggested that it cut crime by up to half. But the randomised trials told a different story suggesting that participating in Scared Straight made youths substantially more likely to offend. 
What those four examples have in common is that they used a randomised trial to evaluate the impact of a policy. Randomised trials have a long history in medicine, going back to James Lynn's randomised trials of scurvy treatments in 1747, which helped save the lives of thousands of sailors. In the 1940s, randomised trials showed that antibiotics did not cure the common cold. In the 1950s, randomised trials showed that the polio vaccine was safe and effective. Randomised trials helped drive the transformation from eminence-based medicine to evidence-based medicine. Until the end of the late 19th century, dangerous treatments such as bloodletting meant that doctors probably killed more patients than they saved. Even in the early 20th century, Bayer was marketing heroin as a cough suppressant. Randomised trials help bring a what works approach to medicine. Evaluations seek to answer a range of questions. For example, it's important to know whether a spending program was delivered on time, on budget and as intended. For new programs, small scale pilots, it's also valuable to seek views from participants or service providers that could address any weaknesses in design and implementation. After all, good new policies often underperform due to poor implementation. While these questions are important, they can't tell us whether a program works, for whom, why, and in what circumstances. And to determine what works, every evaluation, whether we're talking medicine or policy, is trying to do one simple thing, figure out the counterfactual. What would have happened if you didn't take the pill or if you didn't participate in the program? The counterfactual is what we get to see in the movie Sliding Doors, where we follow, follow Gwyneth Paltrow's two possible lives according to whether or not she catches the train. The counterfactual is what you got as a kid when you reread a Choose Your Own Adventure book. In real life, we only get to see one version of reality, so we need to construct the alternative. Randomised trials do this by tossing a coin. Heads, you're in the treatment group. Tails, you're in the control group. Because luck determines whether you get the treatment, the two groups are equivalent at the outset. So any difference we see between them must be due to the intervention. Low-quality evaluations sometimes construct the counterfactual by assuming that a person's outcomes would have remained unchanged in the absence of the intervention. And that can end up giving too much credit to the program. Most sick patients eventually get better. Most schoolchildren eventually get smarter. Most regions eventually grow. So any evaluation that assumes the world would otherwise have remained static is likely to produce a flawed result. John Barron, who runs the Coalition for Evidence-Based Policy in Washington, D.C., recently produced an example of this problem based on results from the Department of Health and Human Services Comprehensive Child Development Program, which provided intensive case management services 
to low-income families with young children. Over the five years of the program, employment rates for mothers in the program doubled, which sounds really impressive, until you realise the study also had a randomly selected control group whose employment rates also doubled over the same period. As John Barron notes, if the Comprehensive Child Development Program had been evaluated in the usual non-rigorous way, examining employment outcomes without reference to a control group, it would have been deemed highly effective. In reality, the program had no effect on employment outcomes. Problems also arise from evaluations that compare those who sign up for a program with those who do not. The kinds of parents who enrol their children in after-school programs are likely to be different from those that leave them to their own devices. The workers who choose job training are likely to be different from those that do not. In the early days of the COVID pandemic, a non-randomised study suggested that hydroxychloroquine was an effective treatment. Subsequent randomised studies showed it wasn't. Uh, that so-called selection effect afflicts whole areas of social science. Thousands of studies have been published that compare health outcomes for people who choose to eat one kind of food or drink one kind of drink instead of another. Increasingly, we're realising that this kind of study reveals a lot about the kinds of people who eat or drink certain things, but very little about the foods themselves. Health writers Peter Atiyah and Bill Gifford point out that our food choices and eating habits are unfathomably complex. So observational studies are almost always hopelessly confounded. In other words, health studies based on comparing people who choose to eat different things may be as junky as a supersized burger with fries. A better approach is that adopted by the US National Institutes of Health, which is conducting randomised nutrition studies. These require volunteers to live in dormitory-style settings, where their diets are randomly changed from week to week. Nutritional randomised trials are costlier than nutritional epidemiology, but they have one big advantage. We can believe the results. They inform us about causal impacts not mere correlations. And in case you're wondering what this means for claims that a daily glass of wine makes you live longer, feel free to ask me in the Q&A. <laughs> Rigorous evaluation is more likely to show up failure. A study published last year analysed 10 different job training programs in the United States. Each program was evaluated in a sizeable randomised trial tracking earnings. After six years, only one program, year up, had a positive impact on earnings. As the authors of the study point out, a lot needs to go right for a training program to boost earnings. It must have a sufficient impact on the credentials earned. Those credentials must have labour market value. The participants must find jobs. Training programs can fail because participants don't complete their studies, because the credentials have low economic returns, or because participants don't move into employment. 
The Year Up program produced a substantial wage return of around 7,000 US dollars a year, suggesting that it is possible to thread the needle. But nine out of 10 programs did not perform on this outcome. In education, the Coalition for Evidence-Based Policy analysed the randomised trials commissioned by the US Institute for Education Sciences and found that just one in 10 had positive effects. The problem isn't confined to the public sector. The area where randomised trials are now most accepted is in the evaluation of new pharmaceuticals. In most advanced nations, getting public funding for a new drug requires that it go through phase one, two, three clinical trials. Only one out of 10 drugs that look promising as they come out of the lab, make it through all three phases and onto the market. Another example in the business sector is from Google, which, like many other successful companies, is constantly conducting randomised trials. Google estimates that just one-fifth of these randomised trials help them improve the product. All those findings illustrate Rossi's law, coined by sociologist Peter Rossi, which states that the better designed the social assessment of a social, the impact assessment of a social program, the more likely is the resulting estimate of net impact to be zero. This isn't because high quality evaluation is cruel, it's because it's telling us the truth. Designing programs that work better than what exists today is really, really hard. The people looking to improve education, medicine, and even internet search are smart, thoughtful, and hardworking. They have access to a huge body of literature, oceans of data. When they produce a new intervention, they're probably confident that it works, and they might even be tempted to put it straight into market. The fact that failure is more common than success doesn't suggest that program designers are foolish or careless, but that they're grappling with problems that are difficult. In the face of major challenges, low quality evaluation is a hindrance, not a help. Using dodgy impact evaluation techniques is like doing your running training with a slow watch. Might make you feel like you're fleet-footed, but when it comes to race day, you'll be shown up. That's why researchers in areas such as pharmaceutical development are committed to using randomised trials. They recognise the importance of accurately evaluating new treatments. They know that poor evaluations of medical treatments can cost money and cost lives. In the face of hard problems, we must bring more than a crash or crash through mentality. We need to show up with a willingness to rigorously evaluate those solutions. We need to bring enough modesty to the task to acknowledge that answers that sound right might not always work in the real world. To generate and sustain a culture of continual learning, we need to be open to being proven wrong and use that information to do better the next time. We need to accept honest feedback, not pretend to get by with a dodgy wristwatch. That's why we announced in this year's budget that the Albanese government will create the Australian Centre for Evaluation. 
beginning with an annual budget of around $2 million. The centre's 14 staff members will work across the Australian government and beyond to improve evaluation capabilities, practices and culture. A core role for the centre will be to champion high-quality impact evaluations, such as randomised policy trials. Past reports have clearly shown the need to improve the quality of evaluation across government. Work done for the Thodi review of the public sector found the quality of evaluation was piecemeal. Some high-quality evaluations have been conducted, including by the behavioural economics team in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. But in many other areas, the capacity to conduct rigorous evaluation is lacking. There's a lot being spent. A report from the Australian Evaluation Society estimates that in 2021-22, the Commonwealth procured 224 evaluations from external consultants at a total cost of $52 million. And because not all commissioned evaluations can be identified, that's likely a significant underestimate of the total volume of external evaluations commissioned from consultants by the Commonwealth. One problem for consultants is that there isn't much incentive to undertake a high-quality evaluation. If Rossi's law is right, then the better that consultants design their evaluation, the less likely they are to produce a report that shows the program worked, which might in turn make it harder for them to win the next contract. That's why we're also encouraging agencies to rebuild their own in-house evaluation capabilities and consider partnering with the Australian Centre for Evaluation to carry out high-quality evaluations. An insourcing approach, consistent with the way that Finance Minister Katie Gallagher is operating right across the Australian government. Another reason that consultants' evaluations may fall short is if they're commissioned to produce evaluations late in the process, when there's insufficient planning and data available. So the Australian Centre for Evaluation will also be working with government agencies to strengthen evaluation planning, especially in new budget proposals, and ensure that evaluation is considered at all stages of policy, not seen as an afterthought. While the Australian Centre for Evaluation will operate across government, it won't be compelling agencies to collaborate in evaluation partnerships. A high-quality evaluation is not like an audit, which can be conducted after the program has been rolled out. Good evaluation needs to be built into program design from the outset, which means working collaboratively with departments that are deploying the programs. We'll be complementing high-quality impact evaluations with other culturally safe evaluation methods that allow us to understand the lived experience of Australians and deliver better services. Over recent months, I've met with many of my ministerial colleagues to discuss which programs might be suitable for evaluation and how we can drive higher levels of evidence to support decision-making. Similar discussions are taking place at a public service level between the Australian Centre for Evaluation and other agencies, including the beta team in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. 
We're working to change the old stereotype of randomised trials as slow and expensive, while ensuring relevant ethical, cultural and privacy considerations are at the centre of our thinking. Sure, blockbuster randomised trials such as Perry Preschool or the Rand Health Insurance experiments took many years and cost many millions of dollars. But it's also possible to do, do things much more simply. We're not the first to think about the power of quick, simple policy trials to identify what works. In 2014, President Obama convened a White House conference on low-cost randomised trials. The result was a competition funded by the Laura and John Arnold Foundation that called for proposals to conduct simple economical randomised trials, costing between $100,000 and $300,000. One trial provided support to low-income first-generation students to enrol in college. Because it used administrative data, the evaluation cost just $159,000 and found large positive impacts. The next year, the Arnold Foundation announced that the low-cost randomised trial initiative would continue. But this time, every program that received high ratings from the expert panel would be funded. There's an opportunity for a major Australian foundation to do likewise. In Britain, the Education Endowment Foundation has also conducted many low-cost randomised trials. An analysis of its first 119 randomised trials in education found that three quarters cost less than a million pounds, including both the cost of the intervention and the cost of the evaluation. In the context of many evaluation programs, that's a relatively modest sum. Here's an example of a simple trial. In 2021, when school closures kept many pupils at home, the British government massively expanded tutoring programs. But a significant challenge was to get disadvantaged pupils to attend tutoring. So the Education Endowment Foundation carried out small-scale randomised trials of three strategies to boost attendance. In the first intervention, pupils were sent reminder emails shortly before their sessions so they didn't accidentally forget. The second intervention gave tutors and pupils a five-minute quiz about their hobbies and emailed them afterwards to let them know what they had in common. A third intervention gave tutors training in how to build a stronger relationship with their pupils. Only one of these three interventions worked. I want you to now guess which one. Student emails, a hobby quiz, or tutor training? The answer is that only the hobby quiz boosted attendance, but it did so by a significant amount, around 7%. There was good theory behind all three strategies. In practice, only one had the desired effect. That's why rigorous evaluation matters. And by making it economical, it can be built into the ordinary activities of government. There's an old saying that if you think education is expensive, try ignorance. Likewise, if you think evaluation is costly, try financing ineffective programs. Recall the example I gave earlier, in which putting social workers into British schools was liked by everyone, 
but didn't actually improve outcomes. Prior to the trial, the UK government had planned a national rollout of the program, but that was scrapped after the evaluation. This allowed money to be directed to more effective interventions. David Halpin, the head of the UK Behavioural Insights team, told me it saved taxpayers around a billion pounds a year, or enough to pay for the centre that generated it, generated it for the next 100 years. Some randomised trials can be virtually free. If agencies are sending out letters, emails or text messages, it shouldn't cost much more to send two versions and see which one works best. In business, this approach is known as A-B testing. In many firms, testing your ideas is just part of the corporate culture. Indeed, there's companies where failing to have a control group will get you fired. I hasten to add that no public servant is going to lose their job because they didn't have a control group. But we are looking at how computer systems can be redesigned so they make it really easy for public servants to do low-cost, low-fuss A-B tests, ensuring that government communications get better over time and saving time and money. Another easy way that randomised trials can be used in government is to incorporate randomisation into the rollout of programs. During the global financial crisis, when the Australian government decided to distribute household bonus payments to support the economy, it was clear it wouldn't be possible to have the money land in everyone's bank accounts on the same day. So a decision was made to take a list of all Australian postcodes, randomise the order and have the payment schedule determined by that list. That had two advantages. First, it was fair, avoiding the need for the government to choose which parts of Australia would get the money first. Secondly, it allowed researchers to subsequently impact, e evaluate the impact of a bonus payment on short-term spending patterns. The issue of fairness arises frequently in discussions of randomised trials. The most common criticism is that when we've got an effective program, it's unethical to put people into a control group. One survey of Australian politicians found that half thought randomisation was unfair. Where the evidence is rock solid, I agree, it's unfair to put people into a control group. But I'd flip it around and say that if we don't know that a program works, it's unethical not to conduct a rigorous evaluation if one is practically feasible. Any discussion of ethics also needs to bear in mind the possibility that programs are harming the people that they were intended to help. In the 1990s, the US Congress established a program called 21st Century Community Learning Centres which provided a billion dollars in funding each year to high poverty schools to provide after-school activities, such as homework assistance, as well as activities such as basketball. When researchers asked teachers what they thought the impact of the centres had been, teachers said that students who attended the centres had made improvements over the year in academic performance, motivation, attentiveness and classroom behaviour. Then the government commissioned a randomised trial of the program, using the fact that centres were oversubscribed to conduct a lottery for the slots available. Comparing lottery winners and losers, the randomised trial found that those who won a spot in the after-school centres did no better academically. But on behavioural outcomes, they did considerably worse. The rates of school suspensions among attendees 
was around 50% higher. Subsequent studies pointed to a modelling effect. The delinquent boys were encouraging each other to act up. As the father of three boys, I'm no stranger to this effect. <laughs> but I wouldn't have predicted it of the learning centres. Nonetheless, it's a fact that for those in the randomised trial, it's actually better to be in the control group than the treatment group. Another aspect of the ethical discussion is that carrying out randomised trials can help strengthen our democracy. By building a strong evidence base for programs, citizens can see that government is crafting programs based on what works, rather than blind ideology or partisan self-interest. It's no coincidence that authoritarian regimes have been the most resistant to science and evidence. Building a better feedback loop demonstrates to the public that the focus of government is on practical problem solving. And because the results of randomised trials are intuitively easy to understand, they bring the public into the tent, allowing everyone to see what works. All this is taking place in the backdrop of a credibility revolution in the social sciences. A 2015 study led by psychologist Brian Nozick looked at 100 studies published in top journals and found they could replicate only one in three. Where they could replicate the result? the size of the effect shrank to about half of what the original study had found. Part of the problem seems to be that leading academic journals like publishing exciting results. If results vary by chance, the best journals will end up publishing inflated results. Alas, there's also more than chance at work. Over recent years, a number of top researchers, including food researcher Brian Wansink, Behavioural scientist Francesca Gino and psychologist Dan Ariely have been accused of fabricating data for their studies. Ironically, a study of dishonesty among car dealers appears to have been based on fake data. <laughs> a slew of studies have been withdrawn. In one clue as to the size of the problem, anonymous surveys found that 2% of social scientists admit to falsifying data. Whether it's luck or fraud, the best antidote to dodgy research is good research. A decade ago, a leading, leading psychology journal published work by Daryl Bem, purporting to prove extrasensory perception. Other researchers were quick to carry out replication studies, but found no such effects. That's the way science should, affect, should advance, with other researchers rigorously testing surprising findings to see whether they hold up. Randomisters within government have been at the forefront of these efforts. Indeed, one of the first to discover that Dan Ariely's signature studies didn't replicate was Ariella Crystal, then a researcher at the UK Behavioural Insights team. Results from randomised trials conducted by government researchers tend to be smaller in magnitude than those from randomised trials run by academics. That's mostly, most likely, because the government randomisters are using larger samples. In other words, randomised trials in government don't just improve policies. They've also helped rein in some of the wilder claims of social scientists. Naturally, big data creates big responsibilities. With government holding more personal data than ever before, we're conscious of the importance of keeping Australians' data safe of maintaining proper privacy protections and using those data wisely. 
aggregated together to preserve anonymity, administrative data can be used to help government work better. As Chief Statistician David Gruen puts it, these data are becoming increasingly important to provide the evidence base for policy, community level insights and program evaluation capability. Most people don't like doing surveys. And by using administrative data, we can avoid expensive surveys with falling response rates. That means we can include everyone in the research, rather than having to focus the study only on the subset of people who choose to do the survey. Recall the randomised trial of the New South Wales Drug Court. Its results were based on administrative data, in which participants' re-offending was determined based on checking the names of those who came before the court again. We'll take a study carried out nationally in 2016 to 17, which sent gentle letters to the GPs with the highest rates of antibiotic prescriptions, pointing out gently that they were in the top third of super prescribers in their region and reminding them of the need to reduce antimicrobial resistance. To find out whether the intervention worked, researchers used administrative data on prescribing rates. No survey required. As an added bonus, studies that have both administrative measures and survey measures have found that in areas like hospital visits, administrative measures are actually more accurate. In 2021-2022, I served as one of 25 commissioners on the Global Commission on Evidence to Address Societal Challenges. Led by John Lavis and a secretariat at McMaster University in Canada, the commissioners were drawn from across the globe. Our report concluded that evidence is not being systematically used by government policymakers, organisational leaders, professionals and citizens to equitably address societal challenges. Instead, we concluded decision makers too often rely on inefficient and sometimes harmful informal feedback systems. The result is poor decisions that lead to failures to improve lives, avoidable harm to citizens and wasted resources. Our Global Commission on Evidence report proposed that the World Bank devote an upcoming World Development Report to evaluation, that national governments review their use of evidence, and that budgeting take account of evidence. We also suggested that citizens better use evidence, making decisions on their well-being based on the best evidence, choosing products and services that are backed by evidence, and donating to causes that are evidence-based. For my own part, evidence has shaped how I live my own life. Randomised trials of daily vitamin supplements persuade me that they don't have much effect for healthy people. As a runner, randomised trials of marathoners has convinced me that compression socks speed recovery. As a donor, rigorous evidence from GiveWell.org has persuaded me to donate to their top-ranked causes. If the evidence changes, I'm open to changing my diet, my donations and even my socks. Underpinning the philosophy of randomised trials is a curiosity about the world, a willingness to experiment and a modesty about our knowledge. Many of the problems we face in public policy are hard. If it was easy to close life expectancy gaps, educational gaps or employment gaps, past generations would have done it already. 
The fact those challenges persist means that good intentions are not enough. In the decades since randomised trials became broadly accepted as, a be as the best way of evaluating medical treatments, millions of lives have been saved. From childhood leukaemia to heart attacks, survival rates have improved dramatically and continue to improve. That's not because every treatment that emerges from the laboratory has worked. It's because medicine has subjected those treatments to rigorous evaluation. The Australian Centre for Evaluation seeks to take the same approach to policy, testing new ideas with the same methods we use to test new pharmaceuticals. We're looking to make rigorous evaluation a normal part of government. From AB testing the wording of government letters to using administrative data to evaluate new initiatives. Public servants can become better consumers of evidence. When claims are made about effectiveness of a program, ask about the quality of that evidence. Is it one before after study or a systematic review of multiple randomised trials? Each of us can work to raise the evidence bar. Public servants can also help produce evidence about what works. If you spot an opportunity to run a high quality evaluation in your agency, I encourage all public servants to engage with the Australian Centre for Evaluation. Over time, embedding evaluation in the work of government could take many forms. Rather than running pilot studies, we might ensure that all small-scale trials have a credible control group. When policies are rolled out to different sites over time, we could consider building randomisation into the rollout, guaranteeing a rigorous evaluation. When programs are oversubscribed, we might use a lottery approach to allocate the scarce places and follow up the outcomes of both groups. When funds are being allocated across states and territories, it would be possible to provide resources for those jurisdictions willing to conduct randomised experiments. When allocating resources to non-profit organisations, we could potentially provide more support to those whose programs are backed by the best evidence. Finally, if you care about opportunity, you should share our mission to conduct more randomised trials and improve the quality of evaluation. When government fails, the most affluent have private options. Private transport, private education, private healthcare, private security. It's the poorest who rely most on government and the most vulnerable who stand to gain when government works better. Disadvantaged Australians don't need ideology. They need practical solutions that improve their lives. Better evaluation won't just boost the productivity of government. It can also create a more equal nation. Thanks very much.